Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. And I guess uh, here in 1990, I still feel like a pioneer. However, uh, I think there's one here who probably really qualifies for that for that uh, uh, that label of pioneer. And he's our dinner speaker tonight. Please welcome from Simi Valley, California, Roy Kay, to talk to us about the 10th step. Thank you. something new with microphones, so uh, if you don't hear, it's not their fault, it's mine, but we're going to start on this mic and just play it by ear. I'm real glad to be here tonight, uh, especially in a very unique setting where we have the S&Ons and the S.A.s together. I'd like to uh, start by, uh, before I forget it, to send greetings from Nan, uh, the manager of our central office, and from Pat. And Helen, who helped her, we now have three employees in the central office. So, uh, I just, uh, if I ever forget what this woman has done for my life, namely saved it, <laughs> I hope I never do forget. Um, and so Nan sends her greetings, and she's just a very, very lovely person. How many of you have ever met Nan in person? Very, very good. She wanted to come to this convention. As a matter of fact, one of the things we're wrestling with is uh, leading it up to the various conventions on whether they want to invite her or not and whether to pay her expenses or not. The expenses she's come to, she has always paid her own, out of her own pocket. She's a non-sexaholic secretary. Came in April of 84. Um, by the way, any of you who, uh, she reminded me to tell you that any of you who are not on our uh, essay mailing list for the newsletter. Uh, the newsletter is free. We anticipate that it will always be free. There will not be a subscription price. And it comes out about four times a year. And uh, it has the calendar of events, group news, member news, and other tidbits and stuff like that. And uh, all you have to do is write or call the central office and say you want to be put on the mailing list for the newsletter and you'll get it free. It's the one point of contact we have so far with the worldwide membership. Um, I brought three books up here with me, and these are the new member stories. Member stories, 1989. Uh, this represents something that we've been trying to get for a long time, and those of you that have taken the essay know that we went through a process of announcing groups and intergroups in the world to submit stories of members that were three years sober or more. And this is the result of that effort. NAN in the central office coordinated that effort, and uh, they were submitted to the literature committee. 
which read them blind. All of the names and groups and other identifying features were taken out, were deleted, and only Nan knew the identities of these people. Unless, of course, we, uh, some of us happen to guess, but... <laughs> uh, I didn't recognize most of them. But anyhow, through a long process, uh, the literature committee has uh, decided on this, and uh, these are now available here. They just We just got off the press in time and just barely made it for Nashville, and we really wanted to do that. So we hope that, uh, that you'll read the stories, because this is where we are, you see. You can listen to me or whatever, but it's, it's the fellowship speaking that really gives us the stories. And uh, we can anticipate uh, in years to come, there will be other volumes, member stories, 19, whatever. Um, I'm going to talk a little about this uh, literature committee, <laughs> because uh, for the last two days, uh, we have been ensconced up in John Alexander's room and uh, doing great warfare with words and ideas. Not on this book, of course, but on book what was supposed to be book two, Recovery Continues. And uh, that's been going on for I don't know how long, but at least a year, more than that, almost, almost two years. So uh, you won't believe this, but uh, just before this evening meeting, we finally decided on, uh, we made the last decision, the last correction, the last decision. Now, what I, um, they were supposed to be done in time for Nashville, but they didn't get done. But we should have those in a few months, hopefully. Don't count on it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I forgot to tell you what John just told you, that every word uh, of the forthcoming book, too, Recovery Continues, that's the title, we read aloud to each other, and... Uh, this was John's suggestion, I believe, and on the S.A. book, I don't believe I, I mentioned this before, uh, at the very end process of that editing process, I read every word of the S.A. book to my wife. And if you don't think that was a tough experience, that was a marvelous experience. There is something about reading it to somebody, especially your wife, or to even another S.A. member. So God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I'm supposed to uh, talk on the tenth step. My name's Roy. I'm a sexaholic. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, I think you've already heard in this convention and with, the, with what we've just heard with the Literature Committee, this marvelous process of just working together. You've already heard everything a person needs to know about the 12-step recovery program. Uh, we never cited chapter and verse on any tradition, but I believe we were probably battling in our minds, hearts, and, and, and pens uh, every tradition there. And every step we needed to, to, to just survive. Um, because I think the essence of this whole illness is ego. You know, when you come down from the sex, which is a symptom, and then the lust, which is a, just about a symptom, what do we come to? We come to ego. Myself, I'm the real problem. I just happen to choose a sexual framework in which to express my spiritual illness. So I need a continuing process, a continuing process or I just can't get well. And I really don't know what I'm going to tell you, but all I can do is bear witness to the truth of my experience 
and I'm just uh, so pleased to be sober today. My sobriety date is January 31st, 1976, and, it, and so I'm very close. And to be here in Nashville at that at that uh, 31st will be a, a, a you know a very very uh, it, it's just an interesting experience for me. So I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I went into Alcoholics Anonymous about 15 and a half years ago, not to stop drinking alcohol. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I went into Alcoholics Anonymous to stop killing myself with sex and lust. I had started masturbation at the age of eight in total innocence as a child. By the time I was a senior in high school, it was a mad compulsion where I had to, at any cost, find a picture and have sex with myself. It was just an escalation of the innocence, what it started. But I was beginning to feel, in those uh, nine years or whatever it is, the ravaging effects of my disease already. It was interfering with my school, my studies, and everything else. I got in the Navy and started trying to stop masturbating. I'd never gone out with a girl, I'd never gone out with anyone. I had never touched a girl, and uh, I didn't have to. It's amazing when you read these member stories. We've got just about every spectrum of our illness represented, every sex, every kind of acting out, whatever. And almost 100% the common denominator is masturbation. I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't able to say that word in SA for, for years. I'd feel funny saying it. And you'll even see some of the relics of that. You know, sex with self seems better than using that terrible word. Uh, but thank God we can come to a convention, 300 people, and we can talk about it. And our wives are here. <laughs> uh, I'm glad the Essanons are here. I'm a little puzzled. I don't know how to talk to a mixed meeting. Because I'm a sex drunk. I'm not a... I don't have, I, I, I have so far resisted the, the temptation to prepare anything in my talks, although I often do, but I've never used it. And I just, all I have to offer is where I am today. And where I am today is exhausted, but in great joy and victory. You just cannot believe the victory of my being able to relate intimately with people who are taking my writing apart. <laughs> And uh, I, I just cannot believe, I mean, I'm in, in a state of wonder. I'm still in a state of shock. And, uh, and I can't believe how three others, with the package of defects that they have, <laughs> that's Jean wor Jean's word, package of defects. She, she applied that to me first. That was one of her incomplete sentences. Roy, with your package of defects. <laughs> but I'm glad you're with me tonight because, you see, I need you. I need you. And one of the amends I have to make to the fellowship is that my codependency got to where I got stressed out so much that I wasn't taking care of myself. I was playing leader and I was playing whatever, whatever playing central office, and I was not taking care of myself. I've been taking care of myself for the last year and a half. But I still, uh, I need, uh, now I can need you as a peer. 
Now I can uh, uh, need you, and I have to go to meetings today where no one knows who I am, where I can be a beginner in my own way, where there are people there who have what I want, and where I'm willing to go to any lengths to get it. And uh, while I'm at it, let me just urge to any person who calls himself a founder of a group or the one who starts a group, it's a tricky position. And the casualty rate, the statistics of casualty rates for that position are higher than just the average member. And it's tough. Don't get caught in the trap I got caught in and paint yourself into a corner. So I thank God for the 12-step movement. The 12-step movement is moving. And we don't know where it's moving. SA is just a small part of that movement. It started about 55 years ago. Continued to take personal inventory. When I got sober, I thought my, when I first got sober, I thought my only problem was lust. Because I was on the school ground as a, as a, as a substitute teacher, and I was just in conflict, torn with conflict on every skirt that walked by, every teacher or most every student. So withdrawal for me, uh, was just obvious. The only problem I've got is lust. It really wasn't sex because I was in abstinence. My wife and I had separated. But I quickly saw in sobriety that my real problem was resentment. That was my next problem. Recovery continues. My next phase was fear. Today I see the misdependency. I don't like the word codependency. I, li- I like the word misdependency. Because I am misdependent within myself. I don't need a co to be dependent with. I'm a misdependent person within my own self. It's just part of my illness. What happened when I started taking inventory was in my first two years of sobriety, I got uh, an AA sponsor, did my fourth step, and that opened the door. But I quickly saw that my real problems were the defect, were the defects I had in my personality. And if I gave you the litany, you know, you know the litany of those defects. It's, it's kind of a bore to repeat them. But um, our illness is very, very profound. And uh, by the way, how many people here are at their first, uh, it, this conference is their first essay meeting? It's amazing, amazing. I don't have to ask the question how many of us are having trouble maintaining sobriety because probably half the, uh, half the uh, hands in this room would go up. And that's because we've got something that's very, very tough. We don't really know what it is yet. We thought it was sex. But once we get sober sexually, we are hit with something, as I was hit with something. I was fat, dumb, and happy in the first one and a half years of my sobriety. You know, after initial withdrawal, I was going to meetings like mad, Working, and I was really proud. I told my old high school buddy one day after a year and a half of sobriety, I said, uh, I'm a recovered sexaholic. I put it in the past tense. That very day, I lost my sobriety, one and a half years of sobriety. And I didn't know what hit me. I didn't know that I wasn't really in recovery, that I had sobriety. I had technical sobriety, and I hadn't started the journey of recovery. I thank God today I'm continuing the process of recovery. But for the newcomer here, what I'm trying to say is that uh, I think 
And of course, anything I say, you know, is just my opinion. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to accept it or anything else. It's just my opinion. We're just in a meeting together, and I happen to be the speaker. Uh, I feel, uh, for me, sexual sobriety, I'll, I'll reword it. I'll, I'll, I'll say, for me, victory over lust is impossible. I could stop sex on my own without any problem. I put the plug in the jug, you know, went through a little bit of uh, withdrawal, whatever, 30 days, and then I was home free. But the lust was killing me, and I wasn't coming to terms with it, either in my marriage or on the, on the streets. I'm going to do something I've never done because I want to communicate to the newcomer and to some of us the profound nature of what lust really is. And I haven't plumbed that at all, but I'd like to share with you the last thing I wrote on lust. If you remember, the very first thing I wrote on lust was that little bit of verse in the book, Lust Kills. That was written probably in 1978 or 1979, maybe earlier. Because in AA... I was impressed with the fact that to drink is to die. I also stopped drinking, by the way, and using tranquilizers. But uh, I said with myself, with no other 12-step experience, the only experience I had was, was AA, I said, I know that for me, somehow, I don't know what it is, but what I'm doing can kill me. And I wasn't thinking of physical death. There was no AIDS scare then. Nobody had heard of AIDS. 1976. And uh, I just intuitively knew that it was death. What is lust? What is lust that makes continuing inventory about my character defects absolutely necessary? Let me share this. Uh, this was written as a letter to an SA member. And... Um, It's not my usual style of writing. I kind of cast it in kind of a very brief thing, and it turned out to be blank verse or whatever you call it. I don't know, but it, it has to do with the anatomy of a look. And I think I'd just like to read it to you. Uh, if I do nothing else, I want to leave you with hope tonight. But before we can do that, I've got to really kind of... Uh, I think we have to once in a while get serious about the true nature of our illness. And that, perhaps, is our true calling in SA to call attention and get victory over the true nature of our illness. This is only my story. What I'm going to read to you is my own experience. And it comes out of wrestling with lust in my life. And by the way, I just if I forget it, my mind isn't very sharp today. If I forget it to tell you, my lust is better than it has ever been in my life. I went to school last semester, took four courses, and uh, was with uh, all kinds of college girls and everything in class. One was acting, you know, where you do everything with people. I mean, you get on the floor and you play games and everything else. And um, uh, it was a marvelous experience to feel the freedom from temptation, to know that there it is, you know, there she is. But I don't have, I don't feel that inner intensity. I know I'm a lust drunk. And I know that I can take that drink and get drunk just without even batting an eyelash. But it's better. But I want to read to you, this is an, my analysis of my experience on over the years, how I've come to see a new look at lust. And just take it for what it is. I don't know how this is going to come out. <laughs> Let's give it a try. 
There she is. I'm going to put on my other glasses, reading glasses. Be easier. By the way, I got to confess to this. I submitted, you know, in the pre uh, pre verse version of this, I put this in book two. I said, hey, that that'd be really good. The fellowship ought to know this. And this is one of the things we kicked out today. <laughs> so, so I got to get it in there. There she is over there, that image in the corner of my eye, light rays impinging on the retina of my peripheral vision, rays coming in, neutral, passive, innocent, brain processing the data as a computer, man, the benign machine. Then the image moves closer and more data is processed. The computer sets a flag, trigger material, recognition. <laughs> now I, the practicing luster, face a moral predicament, decision to drink or not to drink. Suddenly I'm a spiritual creature with a higher will using the computer, man the autonomous being. I choose to drink. Not just look, drink. Only the lustaholic knows the difference. What is the drink? Instead of light rays coming in passively and registering a neutral image, something is now going out of me. Theft, a taking, a plundering against the knowledge and will of the other person. And lightning fast. Lust is always an act of violence. Rebellion, demand, I want, I must have. I must have or I'll die. So I take and get. It's free and secret. No one knows or will ever know. I don't even acknowledge it to myself. The perfect feel. Man knowing good and evil on the same order as man being God. But it's an act against, against the woman or man, yes. But there's something in me I have to transgress. Something in me I must turn against, the light inside God. What else can it be? Lust proves there's a conscience and knowledge of good and evil in God. The tree of death is within me. I choose to eat of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brings death into the world and all our woe. An act of defiant will against the light I take it and shut God out. Isolation, separation, escaping inward, getting lost inside myself. Losing myself but seeming to gain a shot of life. And instead of the image serving oneness with that person, I choose to use it against the natural perversion. Greedily I ingest and possess and am possessed. The one glance is enough. I now process the image any way I choose. It's no longer a person out there. It's something in here, a part of me. The image is invested with a supernatural power and presence larger than life, infused with spirit to fill the God-emptiness within spiritual intercourse with myself. Or is it? The creative, this creative power I get is from being in the image of God. That's what I use to imbue this thing with its supernatural force. Thus I pervert the very image of God. And this is what I want and must have. It's taking me out of myself, 
mood-altering, mind-altering, self-transcending, spiritual ecstasy. What power? I'm in total control. I create and possess. I am God. The saliva of the false god juices a voracious appetite. I gulp and devour this inner entity and am devoured. Lust is self-consuming. I'm doing this all to myself. No wonder it unleashes the negative force, rage, and the whole litany of my sins. And what was once neutral, innocent reality, a person out there, a mere picture in the brain, is now a perversion, twisted distortions of reality out of the inner darkness. I, the destroyer at work, I now the god of my own life, creating my goddess of desire in my own lust image. False worship, idols out of the id. And I have what I truly want. My own god, me. The giver of life to me. But to what end? Death. Yes, that one look, shutting out the light and love of God and man and woman, blinding me to the truth about myself, for to see that truth would be to fall down and cry, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what I have to deal with in continuing to take personal inventory. That's the hooker. That's why we're here. Don't kid yourself. And if you want to find out, just get sober from sex. And stay sober. And you'll find this thing that we had to have. Now, the price of recovery is so high, most of us don't make it in the sexual addiction programs. Not like AA, 50%. The larger your group gets, the newcomers will come in in droves and leave in droves. The payoff of lust is too great for most people because we don't want to die. And for me, to die to my lust is to die to the goddess, the god of my life, the only thing that was the source of the feeling of life and energy that nothing else gave. And so, I die daily by the grace of God in this fellowship. And it's a marvelous experience to die. To die to my lust, to die to my resentment, to die to my fear, to die to my judging, uh, unforgiving spirit, Die to my controlling codependency, my misdependency. To die to my inability to relate to other people comfortably. To, to die to the imprisoned reactions of my childhood past, too. So the surrender of the first three steps and working steps four through nine brings us to ten. All I can tell you is the greatest single action item that has kept me sober and increasing in increasing victory over lust is the tenth step. When I was wrong, promptly admitted it. 
And very seldom was it prompt. I've backslidden on the time period of that promptness. You know, I've, I've made it short and then gotten bigger and then I try to get it shorter and it just, it goes. But uh, the greatest single effort, it started with my wife. The amends making, the taking of the 10th step, the personal inventory. And uh, it continues, continued with my wife and it continues with my wife. The toughest place to work this program is my own home. Toughest place. We were just uh, talking today. We were just talking today with uh, one of our, our newcomer brothers, and we were discussing uh, the difficulty of the sobriety imperative for single people in SA. Uh, and 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 I was sharing with him the, the comment of many of our uh, single and married people when we get to know each other well in meetings. <laughs> you're gonna single people are gonna kill me here, but uh, many of us feel that sometimes it's harder to be single in this uh, to be married in this program than it is to be single. <laughs> but lust uh, knows no uh, gender. It lust no, uh, you know. It, 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 we have a common problem. Um, continue to take. Nobody could take that for me. All the people that take my inventory and then that took it, uh, it doesn't help me a bit. I have to take. <laughs> And we do take each other, let's face it, we just do take each other's inventories. I mean, we've been doing this for three days, just in, in the four of us. And uh, it's okay, we just do the best we can. Personal inventory. Now, I think the toughest part of our program is this word personal. That it has to go to the same level our lust does. That's why I read you this piece. The personal inventory. Can't just rest in externals, we'll never make it. It's got to go to the same level that our lust is coming from, and that's tough. I can't do it. I'm telling you today, I do not have any power, any strength, any resource in myself to have progressive victory over lust and sex. Whatever, all, all these other litany of my defects. I don't have it. I can see them myself. I don't. I can't get it. And, I, and that's the mystery of this program, that God is doing for me and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I cannot but I'm doing it. That's the paradox of the kingdom of God in our midst. It's a marvelous kingdom. I don't understand it. We don't understand it, but we're on this journey. Continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, oh boy, promptly admitted it. There are two of the most difficult amends I've ever had to make. One was to my former boss at Teledyne. And he was an ex-Marine Corps man. And he, you know, if he wasn't a DI, he should have been. Because to work for that man, my impression at the time was that, you know, after a couple of years of working for this man, my impression was that, that you might as well hand him your testicles so we could put him in his front drawer and just forget about him because you were going to be a eunuch from that day on. And uh, I resented that man. I just, the volcano, you know, you hear me talk about the volcano of, uh, of resentment bursting when I get sober from sex. Well, this was one of the, the targets. 
And uh, I never harmed that guy. But I just resented him so terribly that years into sexual sobriety, after I'd been out of that company for years, that memory would keep flitting back. I'd say, why does this keep coming back? You know, just push it down. Real easy to push down. You know, real easy. You know what it takes to push these things down. We have a whole arsenal of weapons. Just so easy. I can do it with two soda crackers. Or a flip through a magazine. Oh, i got to tell you something before I finish this amendment. On the plane coming out here. Very, very interesting. First of all, this big guy with the big hat sits in front of me. And he's coming in with this huge cup of... I've never seen a Palisca, uh, whatever cup of coffee that big. And he sits down and he drinks it. The guy next to me has ordered one cup, of, one small cup of coffee from the stewardess, and he drinks it. The front seat for an hour was vibrating in front of me. The guy, I mean, physically, his body was vibrating. The guy next to me was a, he's a geologist, a young man, intelligent, whatnot, after he drank his cup of coffee. He shouldn't be telling this. Uh, his left leg was going up, jumping up and down. For, I timed it for 30 minutes. <laughs> After 45 minutes, he got over it, and, and, and he was okay. And you know, I went, I went through this, and, I, and it just reminded me of, of, of one of the things I had. But uh, that's just a prelude to what I'm going to say. <laughs> the lady behind me to my left... Uh, wasn't drinking coffee. <laughs> she was flipping through the magazine. Flip, 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 flip. And I identified myself in all of these three people. And I just sat there and looked. And we had a bunch of these Nashville music types there in the whole airplane. You know, I went up and down the aisles and see these people with their laptop computers or their hats or their long hair or whatever. By the way, what is that hair for? Anyhow, I want to tell you something about this lady with the magazine. It's a very important about my lust. And I, maybe I'll close with this. I don't know because, you know, I, I don't want to keep it too long. Ah, oh, very, very, very important. You know the deal about resentments and amends and all that. You know, I, I want to share what I'm current with. Um, I noticed, I've been doing some research on the impact of images on man. And I read two books. One was on the one was written by a psychologist at Harvard in 1916 on the the psychology of the photoplay. That's what they called it then. Another was written on photography, a critical analysis of photography. The reason I'm doing research on the on the impact of images on man is my whole life has been impacted by images in my disease, and I want to see more of it. Now that, you know, I'm a little free of my obsession and everything, I want to understand it more because I feel part of our problem, part of what has contributed to our problem is the cultural addiction in which we live and move and have our being. And one of the main sources of that cultural addiction, uh, cultural addiction is the, the role of images in modern society. Okay. The camera was invented in 1838 by the Guerre and Talbot, one in France and one in England. By the turn of the century, everyone in America had a box 
thing you snap and take snapshots. Uh, color photography. Today, I mean, you have to understand that in 1838, the only pictures there were were engravings that are difficult to make. And the newspapers or magazines or books that had these, a picture was a rare thing. Why is it that when I take a magazine in an airplane, I want to flip through the pictures, or when Time Magazine comes to my mailbox, the first thing I'm doing is looking at pictures automatically. Okay, the, the, the physiologists tell me that a third of the brain, I, am I right on that, is the, uh, is the occipital lobe, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, part that has to do with vision. Now, most of the brain is processing visual data. Processing and storing visual data. Okay, now the moving picture comes in in 1898. Thomas Edison and those people. Within a few years, there were 25,000 Nickelodeons. Nickel places, nickel movie theaters with a lantern. And by 1916, when he wrote the book, there were 125,000 moving picture theater, theater houses. What I'm trying to say is that there was instant recognition for the human race for, for pictures that were readily available. There was something about us. This says nothing about the content of pictures at all. Nothing about what's being shown. Just the fact that it's a photograph. Now, when you start that photograph moving, watch out. When you add sound, watch out. Because I feel also today we are impacted by the impact of sound on, 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 our, on our humankind. Uh, now, I remember I was in church when television came out. And I remember the great battle, John uh, A. could describe this much better than I, where all of these sanctimonious people that said, you know, you don't play bridge or go to movies, and suddenly a television set comes in the house, and instantly the human race is captivated and possessed by something. Here again, irregardless of contact, you know, who's going to fault Ed Sullivan? Or Jackie Gleason? It, it never stops. There's nothing we can do about it. But I'm a video addict. I have, I don't have what's in me to control and enjoy this stuff. Uh, maybe I'll be strong enough someday. Today I'm just happy to do without it. And I feel much better. I feel much better. But that's my own private journey. But what I want to say is that this, that the aspect of lust uh, we just have no concept. If I have time in my life, I'd love to just research this more. But, but uh, I, I have to, for me to be comfortable, I have to understand that my life has limits. I'm not a normal person. I'm like someone who's had his legs cut off. I cannot grow new ones. How many believe that? Strange. It's paradoxical. You know, we can't prove it. We don't know. But uh, I just want to end with this. There's a marvelous hope for those of us that fit this description, the anatomy of a look, marvelous hope. Marvelous hope. Today, I know in my heart the most precious thing I have in my life today is the fact that when I am tempted, I can turn in my heart at that instant and say, I, I, want, I want you to bear this lust for me so I don't have to bear it. 
I want you to bear this fear so I don't have to bear it. And me, the fearful, lustful person, can be free of that without trying. And without going into denial. And that works on everything for me. And it doesn't work unless I work the 12 steps. And the 10th step is the step I have, to my knowledge, worked the most of anything. It's the toughest. But we need that. I want to close with a personal story about what happened to me last weekend with my grandchildren. My oldest son's wife wrote me a hate letter several years ago that I was never to talk to her husband or try to get him to go to a 12-step meeting or if he ever went to a 12-step meeting, never to go with him and never to to talk program with her because I was the source of all of her husband's problems and all of the problems in her home. Any of you heard that before? (laughs) And you know, she, she was right in a way, wasn't she? But we know that, uh, well, we understand. Uh, and she has all three of my grandchildren. She bore all three of my grandchildren. So I have been in a very, very tricky situation. If I'm lucky enough to see them, I'm not allowed to uh, have them over to my house or to be alone with them or anything else. And I've lived in fear of this woman. And I've lived in resentment often. And I've had to surrender that again and again and again. And God takes it away and I'm okay. But I didn't like that situation. It was developing over the years, and I didn't like it. And the kids were getting older. So this Christmas, uh, you know, we had Christmas. Iris and I had Christmas alone and couldn't see the kids. And I just told Iris uh, the next week, I said, you know, let's just go up there. And I had been praying for this woman for months and months and months in my mind, visualizing her, asking God for a forgiving spirit to fill my heart with love, and I didn't get any loving feeling. But I know enough about the program that if I take the action, I don't have to have the feelings. When I take the action, the feeling is probably going to follow. Anyhow, we go up there, and the uh, first thing I see in the walk is my son, and the next thing, there she is. And I'm full of fear. This woman has never touched me, you know. But why am I afraid of her? Because she's so controlling. She controls something that's very powerful. As soon as I could, when my hands were free, I went up to her and took her two hands, looked her in the face, and said, Hi, Kathy. And I thought, How are you? And I kept hanging. And she wanted to break loose so fast. I mean, she was doing everything like mad to get away. And she was in torture. I mean, I felt sorry, but I kept hanging on. And uh, she uh, finally I let her go because she just couldn't handle it. But uh, I then, my, my eight-year-old grandson, Nathan, uh, I said, Nathan, how would you like to go for a walk? And he said, I would love to. You know, we haven't asked her permission, and I know she's against it. He said, I would love to. And so he told his mother, and we just went. I mean, we just went. And we went out to the orange grove behind uh, Lolita, down to the old Doty Ranch, and there was an old rusty tractor, one of these great big bulldozer tractors, and it was we found a date on it, 1942, 
And we got up on that tractor, and I taught my grandson everything I knew about how that thing worked. And the controls worked, you know. The two clutches and this and that. And, and uh, he just took to that thing, and he's very bright. And then uh, we saw the old rusted toolbox grabbed in, and there was a part in it he liked, and we asked the man if he could have it. And he said yes. And then we went back, and uh, we got away from that very tense situation in the home. But when we came back, and as I left to come back to Los Angeles, Kathy came up to me, and she was okay. And she said, I want you to come back any time you want. I'm here to tell you that the new people, the people that are slipping, people still in bondage to lust, sex, resentment, fear, don't despair. Keep coming back. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.